Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat shalom. Today is, is the last day of Passover. I know that's some controversy there. Some people count it as yesterday, some as today, but it's yesterday or today being the last day of Passover, which is a Torah picture of the death and resurrection of Yeshua and us entering into the new covenant by his blood, uh, by trusting in him. So because of that, I think it's fitting for us to, to ask what comes next. We've gone through Passover, through Pesach, a uh, picture of the, the death and resurrection of Yeshua by his blood and trusting in him. Uh, once we've trusted in him as our Pesach lamb, what's the next step? What comes next uh, in our walk with him? And I want to avoid standard pat answers uh, that creates a system of, of boxes that we simply check off. The danger is we hear the word of God, and then we want someone to tell us exactly what to do. Uh, by the way, which is exactly what the uh, rabbinic system is, of tens of thousands of rules and regulations. That's what, that's what they're supposed to be providing. Uh, and why did they create this, this system? Because they did not have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Messiah, to guide them. Uh, but in our flesh, we too have, have the same tendency. Uh, we too crave boxes. Boxes whereby uh, we can say, uh, if I could just check off these things, uh, then I'd be okay. But that's not the point. In fact, that misses the whole point. Because there's a so-called Christianity and a so-called Messianic Judaism that consists of external regulations that bypass the heart. The point is for God to show us his word and then to drive us to the spirit of God. For his word to drive us to him in his spirit. To drive you and me to hours of wrestling before God in prayer about how his word is to specifically apply to our life. Uh, so I want to ask you today this question, this one question. Are you willing to come to Yeshua on his terms? Are you willing to come to Yeshua on his terms? And I ask this kind of in-your-face question, because the brand of messianic faith that we've adopted in America often operates on coming to Yeshua on our terms. In fact, even in conservative evangelical circles, just look at how we describe Yeshua faith and how we encourage people to come to Yeshua. Uh, and you'll find terms that are totally foreign to the New Covenant Scriptures. So we say things like, following the Romans' road to Yeshua or believing in the four spiritual laws, or answering these questions correctly, uh, or, or praying this prayer, uh, or signing this card, or, or raising your hand uh, and declaring your belief in Messiah. But Yeshua told his followers to do none of these things. None of them. Okay, so what does Yeshua say? Well, in Luke 14, there's a big crowd traveling with him. And this is what he said to them. Look at, turn with me, if you can, to Luke 14, beginning in verse 26. Luke 14, 26. Yeshua says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, 
his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't he first sit down and estimate the cost and see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and isn't able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider if he's able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other one is still a long ways off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who doesn't give up everything, everything he has, cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, can you imagine standing in that crowd? Who does this guy think he is? Put yourself in their shoes. How would you honestly have reacted? Uh, Yeshua says you got to hate your father and your mother, your wife and your children. I'm supposed to pick up an instrument of torture and give up everything I have and, and follow you, Yeshua? For most of us, if we're honest... Yeshua lost us at hello. <laughs> you know, it's terrifying for me to think how I would have responded to that message. And so we try to water it down today, don't we? We say, we're not, we're not ready for this. This is a message meant for, for super saints. But look at the context. This is how Yeshua introduced himself to people. He wasn't speaking to some mature crowd, encouraging them to go deeper. No. This was Yeshua speaking to a large crowd of curious people who were potentially interested in following him. And this is what his, his, his initial invitation was to them. Hate your mom and dad. Pick up a cross. Give, everything you, give up everything you have. That's what he says. And it's a stinging indictment of us uh, in our 21st, we 21st century Western believers, that these words sound so radical and so foreign to us. But Yeshua was saying, these are the elementary basic truths of what it means to follow me. But the fact that they're so foreign today, what does that tell you about how far we have strayed for what it means? to be a disciple of Yeshua. In fact, to our shame, today we ask the question, well, can you be a believer and not be a disciple? As if there were different levels of being a Yeshua follower. One is this very thin level, uh, really doesn't cost you very much. And then there's a second higher level for those interested in going deeper. Our brothers and sisters... The New Testament knows nothing of this. The picture is clear in the Gospels. Yeshua says three times, if you don't do these things, you cannot be my disciple, my follower. 
These are basic requirements for discipleship, for following Messiah. And we look at this passage where Yeshua is speaking to this large crowd, uh, the crowd that's been flirting with him on their own terms. Uh, As I stand here today, I can't but think, have we ever really come to Yeshua on his terms? I want to urge you today to ask yourself that question. Have you ever come to Yeshua on his terms? This is an evangelical text. This is Yeshua in Luke 14, inviting people to follow him for the first time, to really follow him. So I want us to look at these terms, and we're going to see that three times he uses this phrase, if anyone doesn't do this, he can't be my disciple. So I want to invite you to hear these terms and to consider for yourself, have I ever responded to Yeshua on these terms? Even if you've been in church or synagogue for for 50 years, ask yourself, have I ever responded to Yeshua on these terms? So what are are the terms? Uh, Term number one, put this in the overhead, superior love. Yeshua requires superior love. Look at Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Talk about strong. Talk about an attention grabber. What does this even mean? What's Yeshua saying? You know, I thought Yeshua tells us to love all people, even love your enemies. I thought Yeshua says to honor your father and your mother. Uh, How do you hate and honor at the same time? Am I really supposed to hate my wife and my children? Paul commands husbands to love their wives. So what Yeshua is saying? Now, I want to be careful here because there's a dangerous temptation to try to soften Yeshua's words. Soften his words to make them compatible to our lifestyle. This is a very dangerous way to approach Yeshua faith. Oh, he really didn't mean that. He really meant this. So we've got to take an honest look at the scriptures and see exactly what Yeshua meant to his original first century hearers. So I want us to look now at two passages in Matthew that will shed some light on what Yeshua was saying here in Luke 14. So the first passage is Matthew 22. It's a conversation between Yeshua and this Torah expert. And the Torah expert asks Yeshua this question, Matthew 22, uh, beginning in verse 36. He says, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment uh, in the law, in the Torah? Yeshua replies, Yahavta, um, right? Uh, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Uh, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law of the prophets hang on these two commandments. So this is the first and foremost command. To, to love God is, it, is the first, let me ask you this question, is the first and foremost command to love God with some of your heart? No, with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and resources. And this debunks uh, the popular idea that there are priorities in our affections. You know, it's popular to say, well, God is first and family is second and then my job is third and ministry is fourth. No. 
Yeshua is saying God is everything. He is all. He deserves our supreme, superior love. All our affections belong to him. The second command is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When love for God is supreme in your life, the result is love for whom? For your neighbor. They go together. Love for one one another springs from your love for God. Loving him is supreme. Uh, It's the superior, primary love. Love for the Lord, for Yeshua, supersedes all other loves. Now let's look at a second passage in Matthew. Matthew 10, 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me isn't worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me isn't worthy of me. And anyone who doesn't take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Here Matthew Temme got this strong comparison. Yeshua says, your love for me must be far greater than your love for even your mother or your father or your son or your daughter. So let's now bring this, uh, that, that context back into our, our primary passage here in Luke 14. And we see that Yeshua uses the word hate, obviously a very strong word, uh, an offensive word. We don't need to try to soften that picture. Yeshua is saying that love for him must be so supreme, it's intended to be so supreme, that every other love in this world, being so far less, looks like hate in comparison. In comparison to Yeshua, in comparison to our love for him, we hate the people we love. Now, it's not that we don't love them. Your father, your mother, your wife, your children. We do. But in comparison to our love for Yeshua, we love Yeshua so supremely that any other love looks like hate by comparison. Now, this totally changes our perspective. Because when our love for God is supreme and captivates our hearts, then what kind of love are we showing then to our father and our mother, uh, to our children? Love of whom? Love of God. Love of Yeshua, of course. Same picture for marriage. Men, how do you practice, how do you even practice Ephesians 5.25, where you're commanded to love your wives as Messiah loved the holy congregation and gave himself up for her? How do you do that? How can you do that if your love for Messiah isn't supreme in your life? You can't. It's impossible. So do you see how these flow together? How one flows into the other? It must start with a reservoir of love for the supremacy of Yeshua. And from there properly flows all your other loves. So our hearts need to be captured and conquered and captivated by the superior affection of Yeshua. And if we're honest, we know so little of that love. For example, your believers say all the time, yeah, I know, I really need to be in church, I need to be in synagogue. Uh, Yeah, I know I need to take my kids to Shabbat service. I know I need to pray. Yeah, I know I need to be reading my Bible. Friends, that is not Yeshua faith. It's not Yeshua faith at all. Messianic faith does not consist of begrudging obedience to Yeshua. Think of this analogy. I come home to Elizabeth. Uh, At the end of the day, I I greet her with this great big kiss. 
And she kind of steps back a little. She says, wow, wow, what was that for? Let me tell you what my response should not be when she asked me that question. I should not say, well, it says here on page 54 of the marriage manual that that's what I should do when I come home. At that point, she's probably taking a marriage manual and stuffing it down my throat. (laughs) Because that's no way to love, by mechanically following a manual. In the same way, where do we get the idea that Yeshua faith is begrudging obedience? And if we're honest, that's how we often think about it. We say, okay, I'll let go of the things in this world that I really love, and I'll do the things I really don't want to do, but I know that I've got to do them to save my own skin. That's not biblical Yeshua faith. That's not the gospel. Biblical messianic faith sees the supremacy of Yeshua and is so infatuated with him, so drawn to him, that our love for him drives everything that you do. It's a superior love that changes our perspective on everything in this world. And so the question before us today, in in, in light of Luke 14.26, about being his disciple, the question is, do you love Yeshua? Do you want him? Do you love him with all your heart and mind and soul and strength? Now, I'm not asking you if you go to shul. I'm not asking you if you read your Bible or pray or teach or do this or do that. I'm asking, do you want Yeshua? Do you love him? Is he the reason why you live? Is he the one for whom your heart beats and for whom your affections are driven? This is the picture here in Luke 14. Superior love for Messiah above all else. So superior that it makes all other loves look like hate by comparison. In our culture, including our believing Christian messianic culture, we tend to idolize good things. That's the challenge, because they're good things. Good things like our children, uh, and marriage, and romance, and relationships, and family. We idolize them to the point where if we're not careful, Yeshua gets the leftovers. The leftovers of our affections which is not biblical. This very passage, Luke 14, 26, it warns us about this very thing, uh, of putting even mother or father or wife or children above Yeshua. Yeshua says here that if you do that, you cannot be my disciple. Yeshua, Yeshua says you must make all other relationships secondary in favor of, of the intimate primary relationship with me. That's what it means to be a disciple of Yeshua the Messiah. Do you want an example of this? I want you to look at the life, briefly, of John Bunyan, the author of the famous Pilgrim's Progress, which, in fact, is the second greatest book, second greatest selling book ever after the Bible. John Bunyan lived at a time where it was not easy to be a Yeshua follower, uh, especially not to be a preacher of the gospel. Uh, and let's not put this in the overhead yet. Please take that down. I'll tell you when. Uh, uh, he was told that if you don't stop preaching, you're going to be imprisoned. He and his family, they weren't well off. He had a wife and, and many children, one of whom was blind. They barely had enough to eat and, and to live on. 
he knew that if he was imprisoned, it would bring great harm and great hardship upon his family. So what does he do? What do you do when you're faced with that decision? Do you keep on preaching? John Bunyan said yes. You absolutely keep on preaching. And so he was imprisoned. And he wrote this from his jail cell. Now we can put this on the overhead. This is what he wrote from his jail cell. We'll put it on the overhead, please. He says, The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of flesh from my bones. And that not only because I'm fond of these great mercies of my family, but also because I have often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family is likely to be meeting with, especially my poor blind child, who lay nearer to my heart than all that I have. Oh, the thought of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces. But yet I must venture all with God. Oh, I've seen in this condition, I'm like a man pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children. Yet thought I, I must do it. I must do it. Wow. Yeshua requires superior love. Does he have that love from you? Does he have it? If not, you can't be his disciple, he says. So number one, Yeshua requires superior love. Number two, he also requires, put this on the overhead, uh, uh, exclusive loyalty. Look at the next verse, Luke 14, 27, exclusive loyalty. Anyone who doesn't carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Yeshua requires exclusive loyalty, carry his cross. Now, this term, by the way, carrying your cross, may be one of the most misunderstood and misapplied terms in the entire New Testament. People today talk very glibly about carrying their cross when they're undergoing uh, an illness, an injury, a struggle, they're in a difficult situation, uh, a bad relationship. Oh, I'm currently in these bad circumstances. Well, I, I guess it's just the cross I have to bear. That's not what Yeshua is talking about here. This misses the whole point. It's definitely not what his original first century hearers, Jewish hearers, would have understood. In the first century, the only time you'd ever carry a cross is if you were a convicted criminal of the worst kind, sentenced to die. And a cross beam would be hoisted onto your back to carry through town in public humiliation on the way to your death. So this reference is absolutely repugnant to Yeshua's hearers got to feel the weight of this. Today, you know, people, we, they wear crosses as jewelry because they think it looks cool. But the equivalent today, or there really is no equivalent, but, but an analogy today would be to say, if you don't pick up your electric chair uh, and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Doesn't sound too inviting or too seeker-friendly, does that? But as I said, that's not really the equivalent because the cross involves so much more cruelty and torture and humiliation and a slow, painful, agonizing death. It was reserved for the worst criminals. Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. 
The reality is, if you're carrying a cross, you're a dead man walking. You have no more dreams, no more plans for life, no more hopes or ambitions. Uh, everything's over for you. Uh, you have no more pride, no more honor, nothing. You're walking through public humiliation on your way to a place where you'll be nailed to, a, to the cross that you're carrying, and you will die there. You're a dead man walking. And this is the picture the Yeshua gives us to describe what it means to follow him. Any takers? What does Yeshua say? What, he, what he's saying here is that through the cross of Messiah, we die to the life we live. We die to the life we live. If you're a Yeshua follower, according to Scripture... Not according to the contemporary watered-down version of Messianic faith, but if a Yeshua, you are a Yeshua follower according to the scriptures, you're dead. You've died to yourself. You've died to your own self-centered dreams and your plans and your ambitions. You've died to all these things. That's why Yeshua says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate even his own life, he can't be my disciple. If we're disciples of Yeshua, we don't live anymore based on, on what we desire, what we dream, what we plan, uh, what we hope for, what we want. All these things are gone. You're dead to them. That's why the believers cry in Galatians 2.20 is, I've been crucified with Messiah, and I no longer live, but Messiah lives in me. We now live in Yeshua. Uh, I was crucified with Yeshua. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Messiah Yeshua lives in me. That's the picture. Uh, we're dead to ourselves and alive to Messiah. We're dead to self-esteem thinking. We're dead to self-focused desiring. We're dead to self-centered planning for our life. We're dead to self-comforting life. We're dead to it all. Instead, we're alive to Yeshua esteem thinking and, and Yeshua honoring and Yeshua desire and, and planning and Yeshua centered living. Dead to ourselves and alive to Messiah. And our entire identity now is wrapped up in who he is. We're dead to all these things and alive to him. Now, this changes everything. It changes our perspective, our worldview, our priorities, because now the life of Messiah determines everything, determines everything about me. You don't determine where you live. Yeshua determines where you live. You don't determine what kind of house, what kind of car you have. That's Yeshua's call. You don't determine uh, where, where, uh, what you buy or what plans you make. That's Yeshua's decision. He now determines everything. You've died your old, self-centered, self-focused life and are reborn in Messiah as a new creation, as the Lord of your life. So Yeshua now has ultimate claim on your life and mine. And Yeshua, he uses two illustrations here to bring that home. The first illustration, he says that we're workers constructing a building. So look at Luke 14, 28. Luke uh, Luke 14, 28, Yeshua says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. 
Uh, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost, see, you've got, see if you've got enough money to complete it? For if you lay a foundation and aren't able to complete it, everybody who sees it will ridicule you, saying, well, this person began to build but wasn't able to finish. Yeshua's warning here against making hasty emotional decisions to follow him. He says, no, first you must count the cost. And this is so radically different than our modern evangelism, isn't it? The evangelist today, let's say he's, he's talking to a sinner, someone who's, who's lost. He says to him, the, put this in the overhead, please. He says to him these two things. The modern evangelist says, number one, well, do you know you're a sinner? Uh, and number two, do you believe Yeshua died on the cross? And if you answer yes to both those questions, then he says, welcome to the kingdom. Now look at those two questions, okay? The only problem is the devil can answer yes to both of these questions too. And he's definitely not in the kingdom. Notice in this modern watered-down salvation invitation, there's no repentance. There's no turning from sin. There's no life commitment to follow Yeshua as your Lord. There's no denial of yourself. There's no taking up of your cross. But Yeshua clearly says here, count the cost before you glibly decide to follow me. Count the cost before you claim the trust in me. Count the cost. What is your decision to Yeshua costing you? Does it cost you anything? Does it cost you everything? Listen to the words of the contemporary English uh, theologian John Stott. He put them on the overhead. He says this. He says, The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of, of derelict, half-built towers. The ruins of those who began to build but were unable to finish. For myriads of self-professed believers ignore Messiah's warning and glibly claim to follow him without first counting the cost. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so the so-called nominal Christian. In countries to which uh, the, the uh, Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Yeshua faith. They've allowed themselves to get somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard, unpleasant trees of life while changing its place and its shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the body of Messiah and dismiss religion as escapism. This, sadly, is much of the body of Messiah today, isn't it? Half-built towers. People say, well, I didn't realize he meant everything. That I have to give Messiah my whole, my whole life. Yeshua says, count the cost. We're like workers building a tower. And then he gives a second analogy, a second illustration. He says, we're like warriors fighting a battle. Look at Luke 14, 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he sit down and consider whether he's able, with 10,000 men, to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? 
If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while the other's still a long ways off and will ask for terms of peace. Yeshua here talks about going to war as a king. Throughout the scriptures, we see the extensive discussions of spiritual warfare, of fighting the good fight. Now, this is very different from the world's view of war, by the way. This is not a battle fought with guns and bombs. This is a war fought with the gospel and prayer and sacrificial love. The scriptures make clear that there is a spiritual battle that encompasses the believer's life. There's a spiritual battle for holiness in your life. There's a spiritual battle waging for the souls of men and women and children all across this planet who will either go to an eternal heaven or an eternal hell. The stakes are much higher in this war than in any earthly war. And Yeshua says, realize you're in a battle. Understand the stakes involved and count the cost. You know, if you look at this battle, this battle imagery throughout the Bible, it's striking how our version today of Yeshua faith no longer really looks like uh, our spiritual walk with, with Yeshua as being a wartime faith. We have more of an easy peacetime faith today, don't we? And there's a stark difference between the two, a wartime and a peacetime faith. In wartime, you're always asking this question. How can I sacrifice to advance the cause of the mission? How can I spend every resource I have to accomplish the mission? We sacrifice in war because we're totally dedicated to the cause. We're not indulging in pleasantries and dainties. We're trying to figure out the best way to accomplish the mission and to sacrifice everything to that end. Everything. In contrast, in peacetime, pleasantries and comforts are the name of the game, are the names of the game. We ask questions like, how can I be more comfortable? How can I have more fun? How can I try new pleasures and new luxuries? There's a wartime way and a peacetime way to approach life and Yeshua faith. By the way, you can see this difference in this great illustration of, uh, of these, between these two uh, on, a, on a battleship that you can actually tour today. Uh, they've made it into a museum. Uh, the Queen Mary is now docked in Long Beach, California. It was built in the early 20th century uh, as a luxury liner with all the indulgences de designed to entice wealthy patrons. It could accommodate up to 3,000 wealthy guests. It was larger and more massive than even the Titanic. But what's interesting is that during World War II, when England was in a state of national emergency, they took the ship and they transformed it into a troop transport. The ship was, trans was transformed from a luxury liner for 3,000 guests into a military troop transport for 15,000 men. The whole ship was turned upside down to accommodate its new mission. You can see the ship today, as I said. It's been turned into, into a museum. And in some places, they designed it for, for troop transport. And you can see the sleeping quarters, eight bunks high. Every square inch of that ship was used to accomplish its mission. And then you could walk into another room and see it designed as, as a luxury liner for people to enjoy the, the pleasantries and the pleasures of the ship. Let me ask you, which image 
better describes the body of Messiah in our context today. In our lives, our families, our homes, our congregations, our communities. Sadly, it's this peacetime faith, this peacetime model, most often, isn't it? But Yeshua says we're to be in a spiritual war and to count the cost. So what are we doing to reach our friends and our family and our co-workers and our neighbors and our fellow Jews with the gospel? What if we, at that time, what if we said we're not going to use our ships, so to speak, our ministries to indulge ourselves, but we're going to commit our lives for the sake of the Great Commission to preach the gospel? to disciple the nations. This is a very radically different way to look at Messiah faith. Yeshua says, consider the cost. We're to be warriors going into battle. Do you want to join the battle? Or do you want to sit back at ease? That's the question Yeshua is asking you and me today. He says, you'll have radically different priorities, radically different if you're my disciple. So, on the overhead, please. Number one, Yeshua requires superior love. Number two, he requires exclusive loyalty. And then number three, he requires, I'm going to call, total loss. He requires total loss. Look at Luke 14, uh, 33. In the same way, any of you who doesn't give up everything, he has cannot be my disciple. For the cause of Messiah, Yeshua says we give up everything we have. That's the word he uses, give up. It literally, in the Greek, it literally means say goodbye to, uh, relinquish, abandon, renounce. We give up everything we have. If you want to follow Messiah Yeshua, we surrender all to him. You know, we like to think we have that kind of faith, don't we? Uh, this has been so convicting for me. Because the reality is Yeshua has full reign over those things in my life that I'm most comfortable giving him. As opposed to having full reign over everything. But as we've seen, Yeshua calls us to give him everything. Our lives, our passions, our dreams, our families, our wife, our children, our mother, our father, our sisters and brothers, our houses, our cars, our TVs and computers and iPhones and iPads, all the stuff we inundate our life with. Do we really give up everything to and for Messiah? Do we say everything is yours, Lord, for the sake of the lost? for the sake of reaching people with your gospel and and making disciples. It's all yours to use for your kingdom, Lord. Yours to use for the sake of your glory. It's all yours. Do you say that? This radically changes how we view our possessions. Let's look at how the original first century Jewish Messianic believers understood this command. Let's turn to the book that was written to them and for them and by them, Hebrews 10.32. The writer of Hebrews says this, Hebrews 10.32. He says, he's talking to Messianic Jews in the first century, and he says, remember those earlier days after you've received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest, in the face of suffering, 
Sometimes you were publicly exposed to, to insult and persecution. And other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Look at the next verse, Hebrews 10.34. You sympathized with those in prisons and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and more lasting possessions. These first century Messianic Jews joyfully accepted all their stuff being gone. How did they do this? Because they knew they had better and lasting possessions in God's kingdom. So they had a very different outlook on life than we do today. Look at the next chapter, Hebrews eleven thirteen. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from afar. And they admitted they were aliens and strangers on the earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of a country they'd left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. What an incredible picture of men and women of faith. God isn't ashamed to be called their God. Because they're not looking at their earthly city. They're looking for another city, uh, another country, uh, a heavenly one. So they hold their possessions lightly. And they consider themselves to be strangers and aliens. And they joyfully accept the confiscation of their property for the sake of Messiah. Because they know there's a better kingdom coming. You can take their stuff but you could not break their spirit because they knew something better was coming. What about us? In 21st century America, we're inundated with stuff. We live in a culture that says the more stuff, the better. But Yeshua did not call us to live an American-style Messianic faith. He's calling us to live a biblical Yeshua faith. That's time we need to see and live our lives for the sake of eternity. We can have all our stuff and tack Yeshua on on Shabbat, but how will that impact our fellow Jews here in Dallas? They would say to us, you got your stuff, we got ours. You say you get yours for Yeshua, we got ours our way, but we both end up the same in the end. Is that our witness? Because that kind of prosperity, health and wealth gospel is not biblical Yeshua faith. Yeshua, say, Yeshua faith says we don't want stuff. We want Messiah. Because stuff ultimately doesn't satisfy. Only Yeshua does. Look at me in the next verse, Hebrews eleven twenty four. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose instead to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Messiah as of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Did you catch that? Moses said, I don't want the pleasures of Egypt. Why? Because I instead want Messiah. He is much greater than all the pleasures of Egypt. 
This was a no-brainer choice for Moses because he was sold out to the Lord. So we're called a sacrifice. But actually, the reality is, when we realize the reward, it's really not a sacrifice at all because we get Yeshua. We get the pearl of great price. We get the ultimate reward. And that's not sacrifice. That's just common sense. Do we want the lesser fleeting reward or the greater eternal reward? Yeshua did not give his life for us on the cross so that we could live for the pleasures of the moment in 21st century America. That's not why he died. He died so that we could have new resurrection life in him and be filled with his spirit and be born again into new creations in Messiah, living now for him and for his kingdom. He is our great reward. Heaven ultimately, by the way, is not a place. It's a person. Heaven is where Yeshua is, where the Lord's presence abides. Heaven is the fullness of Messiah, the glory of Messiah, the enjoyment of Messiah. If our hearts have been transformed by his spirit, then we want that more than anything else. And so we're willing to forsake all for him. Why? Because Yeshua is supreme. The sacrifice we're called to as a Yeshua follower isn't really a sacrifice when you consider the supremacy of Messiah. And so finally, I'm going to look at the overhead. He's supreme in three ways. First, he's supremely loving. Yeshua requires superior love, but the reality is he is supremely loving. That's the beauty of it. Why would I, as the scripture says, hate father and mother and wife and children and sister and brother uh, compared to my love for Messiah? Because this is superior love. We're called to live out a, 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 a superior love towards him. And likewise, his love for you and for me is a superior love. He loved us first. Uh, and, and this is to have a radical effect on the way that we now love him uh, and enjoy him and long and ache for his presence. For he is worthy. He alone is worthy. He's the only one worthy of superior love. In comparison, uh, our, our husbands and wives aren't worthy of that kind of ultimate supreme superior love. Our children aren't worthy of that kind of superior love. Our parents and siblings and friends aren't worthy of superior love. Yeshua and Yeshua alone is worthy of supreme, superior love. He is supremely loving. He proved his love by paying the ultimate price for you and for me. He's supremely loving and lovely, and, and, and we were created to be with him and to worship him. This is what we were created for. And our hearts will never be satisfied until they find their rest in him. So we see the beauty and the supremacy of Yeshua. Number two, Yeshua is supremely loyal. Yeshua requires not just love, but also loyalty. And he himself is supremely loyal to us. He will never leave you or forsake you. And here's the beauty. We don't have to worry about giving Yeshua everything, our plans, our dreams, our desires, our hopes, because we now live to do his plans and dreams and desires and hopes. 
and they're good. They're good. So we say, not my will, Lord, but yours, Yeshua, be done. The Lord knows what he's doing. You can trust him. You can trust him with your life. Do you believe that? Because if you do, then you'll forsake your plans and your desires and your dreams and your hopes. And you'll say, I embrace whatever you say, Lord Yeshua, because I trust you. I trust you with my life. I trust you and I know that you're faithful. You're always faithful, Lord. Always faithful to your people, to those who love you and follow you. So I surrender my plans for my life in favor of your plans for my life. And I know that's a good trade. That's a really good trade. So number one, I can trust Yeshua with my life because Yeshua is supremely lovely. And number two, he's supremely loyal. And then finally, number uh, uh, three, he sacrificed supreme loss for me. He lived the life that I should have lived. He died the death that I should have died. The one who requires total loss from us is the one who sacrificed supreme loss for us. In Luke 14, Yeshua is headed to Jerusalem, to the cross, where he's going to lose everything on your behalf. And the goal of his losing everything for us is that he might be our exceedingly great reward. Yeshua is our reward. This is the gospel. Whether your personal circumstances today are good or bad right now, please know that only Yeshua will, will ever be able to satisfy you. Only Yeshua. He is your great reward. And so today, I want to call every man and woman and boy and girl and teenager and young adult, based on the authority of God's word, to the supreme satisfaction that is in Messiah Yeshua, the Son of God. Unless you think, well, this is too radical. I don't know if I can do this. The question is, why would you not want to do this? C.S. Lewis says this. Let me put this on the overhead. He says, we're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who goes out making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. C.S. Lewis says, in light of all that Messiah offers you, You are far too easily pleased, far too easily pleased with the passing pleasures of this world, far too easily pleased. We think our houses and cars and computers and plans and desires and our comforts and safety and security are good, but we're playing with mud pies in a slum or being offered a holiday at the sea. So let's go. Let's do it. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us. Hebrews 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run. Let us run with perseverance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Yeshua, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's pursue Messiah 
these Hebrew authors are saying, with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength, let's truly be his disciple. These are his terms. Have you come to Yeshua on his terms? Superior love, exclusive loyalty, total loss. Have you come to Yeshua on these terms or on your terms? That's the fundamental, eternally important question. Not on your terms, not on the terms you've created, but on his terms. Now, I know this makes no sense to the world. It doesn't make sense to our culture. But Yeshua says, hate your father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister and follow me. But Yeshua says, your love for me must be so great that all the other loves look like hate by comparison. That's not a very seeker-friendly message. That's not a very good marketing campaign. That's not the way to increase your congregational attendance. But that's the point. The point is the only way you would forsake everything in favor of Yeshua and give up everything for the sake of Messiah is if only if the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, was wrenching your heart and opening your eyes to the beauty and the sufficiency and the supremacy of Yeshua. That's the only way you do that. And that's what I'm praying for him to do for us today, all over this room. I'm praying that he'll be doing that among the men and the women and the children and the students and the young adults here today, opening your eyes and convincing your heart to see the beauty and the sufficiency and the supremacy of Messiah, that he, he alone is worthy worthy of your lives and your time and your priority, worthy of your, worthy of your sacrifice and your total commitment. And if he has drawn you, and if he has convicted your heart, I want to call you to abandon everything and to embrace him. Maybe for some of you for the first time, for the first time on his terms, not yours. And for those of you who have embraced him on his terms in the past, Maybe things got lost a little bit along the way, and you backslid, and your passion and your ardor has cooled off. If so, I want to call you to abandon everything afresh and anew for Yeshua. Amen? Amen. Well, let's stand and pray. I have called the music team to invite them to please come up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord Yeshua. Father, we come to you... Lord, in the spirit of Messiah right now. And we cry out that we want to abandon everything for you. By your Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask you now to create within us this kind of loyalty and love and total commitment to you. Show me, Lord, what this means in my life. What kind of sacrifices you're calling me to. What ministries you're leading me to, to serve you. Yeshua, I declare that you and you alone are supreme in my life. I want to be your disciple, Lord Yeshua, on your terms, not mine. I give you, Yeshua, my superior love and my exclusive loyalty, uh, and I'm willing to lose all for you. So, Lord, lead me, guide me. 
Lord, we fall on our face before you. Take our life. Use it however you want for your glory. We let go of ourself. We deny ourself. We're dead men walking. Yeshua, we want you. We love you. We now pursue you. You are everything. This is not a game. This isn't some kind of Shabbat service routine. This is life, and everything in my life is dependent on you. So now I run to you, Yeshua. Help me understand the gospel in light of your grace that supersedes all. And so in light of the gospel and your grace and your glory, I now let go of my life and my stuff and my hopes and my plans and my dreams and myself. Holy Spirit, awaken me. Draw me to yourself. Empower me to live for you, to obey you, to never ever grieve you or quench you or sin against you. And so, Lord, we come to you, Yeshua, on your terms. Change my life. Make me your disciple. Uh, I abandon and sacrifice all for the surpassing greatness of knowing you. For you, Yeshua, are my exceedingly great reward. And I pray this all in your name, Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.